Good evening. Recently we are doing, well we recently we started at the top of the year a year-long Bible reading plan here at the congregation, chronological. And this past week we finished the book of Job, if you're following along, I hope you are with that reading plan. And a couple of things jumped out to me, especially towards the end of the book, which we're going to look at tonight, that I think will help us in our lives. But I'd like to start with this question. If somebody were to write a book about you and your life, how would they describe you? This is a question that might be somewhat scary to think about, and you might think, well, nobody would write a book about me. But just imagine they would. How would they describe you? From the outset, we have Job described a certain way that I think is particularly noteworthy, and that was read for us. There in your Bibles in Job chapter 1, I hope you'll turn there, Job 1. And beginning in verse 1, you have this description of Job as a blameless and upright man. And it describes what he did. It says that he, notice this, feared God and turned away from evil. And you might read that and think, wow, he sounds like a great guy. If you keep reading there in that verse we read, uh, again, it says that he's the greatest of the men of the East. And if you read that, you might think, well, what does that really look like? What is a person who's blameless and upright? What do they do? Somebody who fears God and shuns evil practically, what does that look like? What exactly did Job avoid? And we don't know a whole lot about Job. It's kind of hard to pin down. But in chapter 31, which is what we're going to look at tonight, we see that there's a number of things that Job says he didn't do, that he wouldn't do. And we're going to see from these things how we, if we would like our lives to be described as upright, our lives to be described as somebody who feared God and turned from evil, we should have these things present in our lives as well. These are some things that we should not do also. Notice in Job 31, I hope you'll turn there in your Bibles, Job 31, and we're going to see what Job wouldn't do. And of course, in the book of Job, it's, there's this tragedy where it seems like everything in Job's life goes as horrible as it can, and the narrator and the readers of Job know that it's because God allowed Satan to touch Job's life and his possessions and even eventually his health. But Job doesn't know that. So him and his friends are scurrying to try to understand why all this is happening to Job. And Job, as you probably know, his friends aren't as good of friends as maybe they should be. They do a couple things right. They go to him and they comfort him and they sit in silence with him for a number of days. But then they start to speak and that's where the mistakes start to pile on. And as you read the book, they get more and more incriminating of Job. And they tell him, you didn't take care of the poor. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. You weren't that faithful to God. There's no way, Job, that you could be going through what you're going through if you really were a righteous man. And it comes to this climax in Job 31. And this is the last thing Job says until God comes on the scene. And this is Job's final defense of himself. And this is all the cards are on the table. Job says, look, this is how my life was. And he rests his case. And let's notice here some things Job wouldn't do. Job 31, beginning in verse 1 through 4. And we see that Job would not lust. Job would not lust. Job 31, 1 through 4. He says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What should be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? 
Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? You see, Job there says that he's made a covenant with his eyes. This is a dedication, an agreement, almost a contract. And it's not that his eyes literally could sign on the dotted line and say, okay, Job, I'm never going to lust. But he had such in himself, such an agreement with himself, that that's something that he was not going to do. It was as if he'd made an agreement with his eyes not to look at certain things. And we know that a righteous person, that's what they do. And in Isaiah 33, verse 15, Isaiah describes the sinners of Israel and he contrasts them with the righteous of Israel. And he says the righteous of Israel, this is what they do. They walk righteously, they speak uprightly, they despise the gain of oppression, they shake, his hand, they shake their hands lest they hold a bribe, they stop their ears from hearing of bloodshed, and they shut their eyes from looking at evil. You see, they have an agreement with their eyes. And Job says, I've made this covenant that I'm not going to lust. I'm not going to look at a virgin. He knew how serious of a sin lust was. And he took real practical measures to avoid it. It was more than just, well, I know this is something that's wrong. I'm not going to do it. No, he had something in place, a covenant with his eyes. And Job's motivation for not lusting is told to us in verses 2 through 4. Job says, I know that blessings that I have are from God. And I know that God sees everything I do. He numbers all of my steps. Therefore, this is something I'm not going to do. And lust truly should, for man and woman, be avoided at all costs. Jesus speaks to this in Matthew 5, 27 through 30, where the Jews of his day thought, as long as we don't commit adultery, that's what the law says, thou shalt not commit adultery. As long as we do that, we're fine. And Jesus gets to the heart of the matter, and he says, wait a second. All these people say, we don't commit adultery, we're fine. But he says, you go around committing adultery in your heart. Why? Because you lust. He says, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. You see, they were so focused on adultery that they forgot about the inner condition of their heart. And Jesus would say in Matthew 5 and 8, the pure in heart are those who see God. And this is something Job understood. It wasn't just enough not to go through the actions. Job says more than that. I know God God sees everything I do. Therefore, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How do you be upright and honest, a blameless man? How do you be the kind of man described in Job 1 or woman? In the first place, you don't lust. In the next place, Job would not be dishonest. Look at Job 31, verses 5 through 8. He says, If I have walked with falsehood, and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance, and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way, and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Let what grows for me be rooted out. We see here that Job desires God to weigh him and to see if he's been dishonest or deceitful. He says, God, look, I'm an open book. Come, tell me if I've been dishonest or deceitful. He goes on to explain in verses 7 through 8 that if he's been dishonest or deceitful, he doesn't deserve success. 
He says, if it's the case that I've gotten what I've gotten by deceiving other people, let what I grow in my garden feed somebody else. He says, I shouldn't even benefit from whatever good I may have gotten through deceit or through lying. We as God's people must likewise strive to be honest. We shouldn't seek to deceive people for our own gain. And again and again in the Bible, it's expressed that the path blessed by God is to live a life of honesty. And anybody who's been alive more than, I would say, five years, maybe less, knows that sometimes you can benefit by lying. Sometimes it does benefit you, at least in the short term, to be deceitful. But those of us who hopefully have lived a little longer understand that Though it might be beneficial in the short term, it never is beneficial in the long term. We read in Numbers that your sin will find you out. In Galatians 6, we read that you reap what you sow. And whatever you gain with dishonesty, you can't hope but to take it with you. And you can't hope but for God to bless you. If we're going to live a life blessed by God, we must be honest. Notice in Proverbs 4, 23 through 27. Proverbs 4, 23 gets a lot of traction, but notice... That whole section there. And wisdom teaches us, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. He goes on to say, put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all the ways, all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left or turn your foot Uh, Sorry, rather, do turn your foot away from evil. So this path of wisdom, this path that God blesses, we have to make sure we're not trying to deceive other people, we're not trying to lie to other people. In Ephesians 4.25, Paul says that Christians have put away all falsehood. And since that's the case, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And wherever lies and deceptions, wherever those dwell... Community suffers. Relationships suffer. And Job says, this is something that I'm not going to do. Likewise, Job says that he would not commit adultery. Look at Job 31, verses 9 through 12. Again, this is Job's final case about his life. He says, if my heart has been enticed toward a woman, and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then then let my wife grind for another, and let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For that would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon. And it would burn to the root of all my increase. Job says he hadn't even allowed himself to be enticed by another woman. He had taken no steps to pursue an extramarital relationship. And notice in verses 10 through 11, he claims that even if he were an adulterer, He'd accept whatever dire consequences come his way. He says, if it's the case that I was an adulterer, then my wife deserves to be with another husband, and I deserve not to have success for my hands. Job understood something that Jesus eloquently fleshed out for us many years later in Matthew 19.6. This idea that marriage is from God, and it's marriage who joins a husband and a wife together And Jesus would say, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Job understood that he made not only a covenant with his eyes not to lust, but much more importantly, 
a covenant with his wife not to go after another. And he says, this is something I have not and will not do. Marriage takes on a special connotation in Christ because we know Ephesians 5, 23 through 33, that marriage reflects the relationship between Christ and the church. And how weird would it be to think that Christ would have another besides his church to whom he was wed? It's unspeakable. It's unthinkable. And Paul says, but this union, marriage, represents the relationship between Christ and the, Christ and the church. The sacrificial love, this commitment, this covenant. And though Job didn't see in his mind's eye the church of the future, he did understand how God felt about marriage. And therefore, in his penultimate case for himself, where he lays out everything that he hasn't done wrong, he says, you can be sure of this. I'm an upright man, and I have not committed adultery. And that's not that adultery is a sin that can never be forgiven. God does forgive people, even of adultery, when they repent, but they must repent. They must come out of those relationships, and they must turn towards God. But Job understood that it wasn't worth even getting into in the first place. More than that, it wasn't even worth being enticed. Next, notice what Job wouldn't do. Job 31, 13 through 15, Job wouldn't be unfair. He says, if I have rejected the cause of my maidservant, sorry, my manservant or my maidservant, when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? Job says he's committed, he was committed to not mistreat his employees He was committed to not be partial to those around them because of their status. We read in Job 1 that he was very successful. He had all of this livestock. He had a great household. He had a great estate. And he said, the whole time I had that, I didn't mistreat those working for me. I didn't look down on those who had less. And God still takes this kind of fairness seriously today. I'm reminded of James 2, verses 1 through 13, where James, by inspiration, pictures this scenario where a rich man and a poor man come into a congregation. And the church leaders say, you who are rich, come here, have the best seat. You who are poor, maybe you can have a seat over here on the floor. And James says that that is partiality, and it's sinful. Later on in James 5, he talks about those who refuse to pay the wages of their employees. And James would say in James 5, 1 through 6, that for those individuals, the riches that they've acquired are calling out to God on behalf of those whom he's mistreated. You see, God cares about how we treat other people. And when you read the Bible, it becomes clear that we cannot, under any circumstance, use our position to mistreat others and expect to have God's favor. We can't do it. Even if it seems like we don't have a position, even if whoever it may be around us, if we look down on them because of who they are and we try to treat them differently, we have transgressed what God has delivered to us as his law. And it can become easy. It can become easy in our culture sometimes to have this idea that, and maybe you've heard this, this idea of what's in it for me, right? I'll be good to somebody. I'll treat somebody well. But what's in it for me? And sometimes... The answer to that question is not much, other than, of course, the blessings of God. 
and that should be enough. Job says that he would not neglect the poor. Look at Job 31, verses 16 through 23. He says, If I have withheld anything that the poor desired, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my, mor- my, my morsel alone, and the fatherless has not eaten of it, for from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, because I saw my help in the gate, he says, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder, and let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. Job goes on to say these are some things that he did not do. He did not neglect the poor around him. And Job says in verses 16 through 21 that whenever he had the opportunity, he fed the hungry. He cared for orphans and widows. He clothed those without clothes. To the point where he calls on God in verses 22 through 23. And he says, if this is not the case, let my arm fall from my shoulder. And this was a common accusation against Job by his friends. On more than one occasion, they said, Job, you think you're righteous, you think you're upright, but we know you mistreat the poor. We know, Job, that you're very well to do, that you're very well off. Surely, you haven't always taken care of everybody you can. And Job says flatly that that just isn't the case. And we should be like Job in this, in that whenever we have the opportunity to help, We should take advantage of it. Whenever I read this from Job, I'm mindful of a couple of verses from the New Testament. One of them being in Matthew 25. You might be familiar. In Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, when all the kingdoms of the world come before the judge. And he's putting those on his right hand and those on his left hand. He's separating the sheep from the goats. And what was the difference between the sheep and the goats? And you might say, well, a number of things. Well, sure, but in this example that Jesus gives in Matthew 25, the difference between those who departed into hell and those who went on to everlasting life was how they treated those without, whether or not they provided for those around them who had less with clothing, with food, with shelter, with water, something to drink, whatever it may be. James likewise says, if you want to turn there, in James 2, 14 through 17, And it's in the beginning of this section that we often go to to talk about faith and works. And we should go there and we should talk about these verses. But James here says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is, that is no good. He even asks, can that faith save him? That is, the faith that's there but without works. And the answer, again, is no. And he gives an example. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, and lacking in daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, James says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And James's point is, in the same way that faith without works is dead, it's just as useless if, if somebody came up to us and needed help, and we said, we'll help you. And we saw them, and they were naked, and they were destitute, and they were hungry. And we said, we'll help you. Go. Be warmed and be filled. But we didn't give them anything by which they could accomplish that. James says it's just as useless. It doesn't do any good. 
And see, Job had those kinds of opportunities because of his culture and because of his wealth. He had the opportunity where literally, most likely, people who were that destitute would come to him and come to his property and ask them for help. And Job says whenever he had the opportunity, he helped those who needed help. I hope the same is true for all of us. And now, yes, of course, we need to use our discretion and we need to be good stewards of what God has given us. But if we have the opportunity to help those in need, we ought to take advantage of it. James, after all, says that pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. And Job fit this description. What is it? To take care of the widows and the orphans and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And when you read Job 31, that really was Job. That's how he tried to live his life, with that pure and that undefiled religion. I hope that that can be true for us as well. The next thing Job would not do is practice idolatry. Look at Job 31, verses 24 through 28. And Job says, If I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, If I have looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart has been secretly enticed, and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. And Job is saying again, if it's the case that I've done these things and I'm as wicked as you say, then certainly I would have had already my consequences for it. And he gives the example of idolatry, and he talks about two different types of idolatry. The first is trusting in riches or wealth. Look at verses 24 through 25. He says, If gold is my trust, if fine gold really is my confidence, if my ultimate joy was found in my wealth because of what my hands have done, he says, then I deserve to be punished. He goes even to talk about religious idolatry, these practices that were probably surrounding him at the time, this worship of the sun and the moon, and kissing the hand may have been a practice that some of those idolaters would have done in part of their worship. And Job says, look, I've never done anything like this. But he says, if he did do it, he would deserve whatever punishment came his way. And I think sometimes we read about idolatry and we see it maybe on TV or in other countries or when Bob goes to Ghana and he comes back with stories of men who have just a pile of cement on the floor and they're pouring out libations to it and you think that's crazy I would never do anything like that but Job even includes this total trust in riches as idolatry and we might not serve a little hump in the middle of the road we might not serve something carved by hand out of wood like Bob has in his office but we also have to be careful not to make other things our master Jesus would say in Matthew 6:24, you're probably familiar, that no man can serve two masters. For either you'll hate the one and serve the other, or despise the one and, and serve the other one. And Jesus said that to make a distinction about God and money. You cannot serve totally both God and money. In Colossians 3, 5, Paul says that we are to put to death what is earthly in us. And he starts making a list of some things. And on that list, He says, it's covetousness, and in parentheses, which is idolatry. This idea of never being satisfied, of always seeking the next thing, of finding our ultimate joy in stuff, and wanting to take it from other people, wanting to even maybe bankrupt ourselves in its pursuit, Paul says, is idolatry. 
In Philippians 3.19, Paul describes enemies of the cross. And he says that enemies of the cross, their God is their belly. Which you might think is a weird thing to say. And it wasn't that they literally thought the master of the universe sat right here in the middle of their torso. Really, they sought their own appetites above what they sought all else. To the point, Paul says, where it became a God for them. And you might think, well, idolatry is just an Old Testament thing. But in 1 John 5.21, the last thing John says in his letter to these group of Christians, he says, beloved children, flee from idolatry. It is possible to still practice idolatry today. And hopefully, by having our lives shaped by the Bible, we have this view of material things, this view of wealth in check. And we might not go and worship the sun and the moon, But we have to make sure that in the process of running this race of life, we don't worship ourselves. Job likewise says that he would not hate his enemy. Look at Job 31, verses 29 through 32. He says, If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, or exalted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. If the men of my tent have not said, Who is there that has not been filled with his meat. The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler, Job says. Notice a couple of things here. Job says not only is he kind to his enemies, but he's kind to complete strangers. And both of these things he's defending himself with. And notice in verses 29 through 30, Job says, When my enemy, or sorry, when the person who hated me was ruined, he says, I did not rejoice. When the one who hated me, when evil overtook him and his life became ruined, he says, I didn't even celebrate. I didn't exalt, he says. He says, I didn't even ask for a curse to be upon that person's life. I didn't even go that far. And he says, it's more than that. It's more than just that I didn't hate my enemies. He says, I even invited people into my house to take care of them. Those who had nowhere else to go, those who I may not have known, But Job says, I was willing to take care of them. And again, this is something that's not just unique to Job, that it wasn't just something that Job should do. This is something for us as well. Hopefully you're reminded of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, and you can find it in Matthew, but also in Luke. In Luke 6, 27 through 28, Jesus says, I say to those of you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And there's instances where you might, in Job's life, we might find him justified. If somebody did something against him, if he had an enemy and Job sought the worst for that other person, that seems a lot of times like human nature. Job says, I never did that. Even Jesus comes along later and says, those who follow me, those who are members of my kingdom, that's not something they do. They don't seek this kind of vengeance. Instead, they pray for those who abuse them. And they bless those who curse them. The the command for hospitality is likewise on every Christian. In Hebrews 13.2, we're told to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some have entertained angels unawares. You say this might just be restricted to Job's context or his time, but it's not. It's for us as well. To go that extra mile, to pray for those who would never dream of praying for us. 
to bless those who would never dream of blessing us, to take care of those even if we don't know them, to seek their best interests and to help them when we can. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that's what Job understood, even all these years before Christ. Job likewise says that he would not conceal his sin. Look at verses 33 through 37. And if you're following along, I know you're excited because we're almost through the end of the chapter. He says, If I have concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart, because I stood in great fear of the multitude and the contempt of families terrified me, so that I kept silence and did not go outdoors. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bring it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps like a prince. I would approach him. And part of Job's struggle is he's suffering, but he's not sure why. And all of his friends say, Job, it's because you're sinning. And Job says, wait a second, guys, you forgot something. I don't hide my sins from people. I confess them. I don't conceal my transgressions. I'm not afraid of the crowd. I'm willing to say when I've done something wrong. Job even says, I wish that God would give me a receipt. A receipt of what I've done wrong. So that I could see it. So that you could see it. He said, I would even wear it like a crown. That way I could know what's happened. And he's trying to not only justify himself, but to convince his friends that, look, I'm open about my sins. I'm not some kind of secret sinner who stays in his house and does all of these evil things without you knowing. And in a spirit of transparency, Job even pleads for a chance to sit down with God and let God tell him all that he's done wrong. Can you imagine that? If you had a chance to sit with God and have God tell you all the things that you've done wrong, how long would you be sitting there? I don't know if that meeting would ever end if I got it with God. But this is what Job asks for so, they can, so that he can show his friends Like Job, though we might not want a receipt from God, we might not want that meeting from God, we should at least be willing to confess our faults to one another. James 5.16, he says, this is part of the Christian life, to confess your faults to each other and to pray for each other. We should shun a double life. And we should remember, like how God, I mean, sorry, how Job affirms here in verse 37, that God sees everything we do. And even if we think we're hiding something from somebody, whether it be our parents or our aunts or our uncles or our grandparents or our teachers or our spouses, if we think we're hiding something from somebody, we're really not because God can see it. And he holds us accountable. And Job says, this is something I know. So what you've been saying about me isn't true. Lastly, Job would not be a bad steward. Look at these last verses, verses 38 through 40. He says, if my land cried out against me, and its furrows have wept together. If I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. And it says the words of Job are ended. In other words, Job rests his case. Job's final argument in this big long line is that he made sure to take good care of what was in his charge. And we see that from the beginning of the book. All that he had, how it was healthy and well taken care of, his estate, his house. Even even his children, right? His children were kept in his care. And it says that when they got together to eat, Job would go and make a sacrifice for them just in case they had sinned. 
That's how serious he was about making sure that his children were on the right track. He says, look, I've paid my employees. I've taken good care of my land. And I'm willing to face the consequences if I haven't. And we see, we might ask that question. When we read Job 1, and we read about this man from us who was upright, who was blameless, who feared God and turned away from evil, we might think, well, what does that look like? Well, Job tells us in part in Job 31. It looks like somebody who refuses to lust, who refuses to be dishonest, who refuses to commit adultery, who refuses to be unfair. It looks like somebody who, in every way they can, is open and honest and seeks to do what God would have them to do. And you might not be like Job. You might not have a lot of land. You might not have a lot of donkeys. You might not have a lot of children. But God has put something in your care. He's given you time. He's given you ability. He's given you really every good gift you've ever had. And he expects us to be good stewards of it all. And the best way we can use our time, our ability, the best way we can use the things that God has given us is to use them for his glory. And that means that with our time, with our life, we let his light shine. That means that with the things he blesses us, we use them when we have the opportunity to help other people. It means that with what we have from God, we use it to follow him more closely. Maybe you feel like God hasn't given you a whole lot, but you're here, so he's given you something, and he's given you something very precious, and that's your life. And there's no better way to use that life than to put it to service for God, to follow him, to come to him on his terms, to repent of your sin, to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to start on the right foot to start a new life in God's family as a follower of him. And we can look to the faithful of old as a way we ought to live. If you've already joined God's family, and perhaps in this list of things that Job wouldn't do, you see something that you would do. Maybe it's a temptation of yours. Maybe it's something that you've fallen into a time or two. Jesus hasn't come back yet. There's still time to repent. And I don't know about you, but I find Job's words here at the end of Job 31 extremely challenging. When I die, I want to be described like Job, somebody who's upright, somebody who's blameless, somebody who fears God and turns away from evil. But to do that, I've really got to get serious about how I live my life. I've really got to give it over to God and to follow him above all else. And that's what Job did. The first time I read the book of Job, I missed uh, saw when it says from the land of Uz, and I thought of the Wizard of Oz, Job from the land of Oz. And you know, at the end of that movie, if you've ever seen it or the book, if you've ever read it, they are constantly searching after that wizard, and they finally get there. And you remember, they pull the curtain, and it's just a guy in a megaphone with some smoke and some mirrors, and he really wasn't the real deal. That's the Wizard of Oz, not a real deal. But Job, the man from us, when you go to him and you pull back the curtain, there's no man in a megaphone, there's no smoke and mirrors. It's somebody who truly was dedicated to serving God. And hopefully if somebody pulled back the curtain on our life, they'd see something similar. 
I know for many of us, they would. But if there's something you need to repent of tonight, if there's a relationship with God that needs to be started tonight, let's let that happen here and now while we sing this song.